So it's a frame in the forest that you can see right through the camp, right through to the other side of the Maasai Mara. Wow. And a bridge punches right through that hole. You go through across this bridge, which is a swing bridge, which immediately forces you to hang on and pay attention that you're entering a new world now, not the stable world of escalators and lifts. So you walk through a little bit like from the green room, opening up the theater curtains and then stepping out onto stage in your own play. That's Derek Chauvin, who, with his wife Beverly, has a totally unique way of designing safari camps through the lens of a camera. This is Design Pod, sponsored by Geberit, with me, Hamish Kilburn, editor of Hotel Designs. Now, this episode is a little bit different. Usually, we would meet a designer or an architect and go from there. Derek and Beverly are, by definition, neither of those things. Instead, they're wildlife filmmakers and photographers. They're award-winning, in fact, and work with the likes of National Geographic. But they're also the founders of Great Plains, which is a series of safari camps that are dotted across Africa. And they pride themselves on providing 100% sustainable conservation tourism, which can't be an easy task given that they're also catering to luxury travellers. The camps are stunning, and it's Derek and Beverly's approach when it comes to designing these properties, each one handpicked and each one sheltering a completely different design narrative that is breathtaking. Honestly, there is no introduction that I can give to explain just how incredible this husband and wife team are. And everything they do, including the expansion of their camps, is to fund and raise awareness of wildlife conservation. For this episode, I caught up with Derek to understand how the camps are designed, from concept through to completion, which, spoiler alert, involves sleeping exposed under the stars each time a new campsite is found. And just to say that this episode does include a reference to an incident that left Beverly severely injured and fighting for her life, which some listeners may find distressing. But I will also add, though, that it's a story that reveals her selfless character and charitable nature. So Derek, thank you so much for joining the podcast from where, where are you in the world? Where in Africa are you? Amish, thank you very much. Uh, we've actually just got back in from Miami, which is bizarre. Uh, we're in South Africa right now. We're heading out to Kenya in the next few days. And where do you base yourself? Because you have camps in Botswana, Kenya, and now Zimbabwe as well. So where do you tend to base yourself? Quite a lot of the time we're in South Africa at the moment, and then we split the rest, maybe 80%. We're, we're in the other regions. We're building in both Kenya and Botswana right now. And uh, that's why going up to Kenya now, spending quite a lot of time there, a few projects on the go there. For our listeners, so we got introduced to each other during lockdown and we were hearing about the work that you were doing. And the thing that I love about your business model, you say you've got a terrible business model, which I love, is that the wildlife conservation comes first. And am I right in saying that you fund that through the hospitality um, section of the business and the, the camps are really to fund the wildlife conservation because you're wildlife photographers and videographers and that's where your focus is. Well, that's quite right. So we do come from that storytelling background in conservation. And so what happens at the moment, the way our business model, such as it is, is structured, is about a third of what we generate goes towards conservation, about a third goes towards communities. And then the last third goes into developing another property. And so we never take a dividend. We don't need to do that. But just going on like that seems to be really working for us and has done for the last 15, 17 years or so. And I think, you know, 
everyone at the moment is talking about sustainability in terms of the social aspect, but that was your model from the off. You just told me a minute ago that you're opening more camps, not because you need to open more camps, because, you know, people need to work and like economies need to, to be fulfilled. And that's really forward thinking back when you when you launched Great Plains. Um, was that always the mindset or, or did that kind of evolve as the industry grew around you? No, that was always the mindset. And in fact, what we did with ourselves and a couple of the shareholders that bought in with us was we said that we'll never take a dividend. We're going to have to develop this model. So our business looks a little bit like an NGO and feels like an NGO and that we're giving back. But it does need to make money. It does need to be a good business. Otherwise, and I hope that others will replicate it. But if it's not making money, nobody's ever going to be interested in replicating it. And we've got a big job to do. What you're talking about right now is us developing new camps and lodges uh, was born out of the pandemic when we looked around left and right and we saw really great people being furloughed, being let go, being sent home to villages in some cases, desperate cases where people were really, really good managers and guides in the field and went home and were living in tin shacks and in one case, a cardboard box. Now, we didn't let anybody go, but so we, we, we sent our staff out to find those people that were really good and, and actually the most desperate of them and to bring them back. And so we ended up with a long list of, of people who wanted work. And so we realized we just needed to build the shell, build the camps or lodges for them to populate. And it's really paying off because... As we've been putting these new camps online, uh, great, well-trained staff have been walking in the front door and and we're up and running immediately. So just for our listeners' sake, um, explain exactly what Great Plains is um, and, and what you are trying to achieve in, in its aim and, and how to be different, I guess. Great Plains is basically a hospitality company in the safari arena or sector. Uh, we have camps in Botswana, Kenya, Zimbabwe. We're looking into Uganda. We're looking at a couple of other countries in Africa right now. Essentially, though, it's built on the on the spine of Africa, where uh, from as a National Geographic explorer and conservationist in the past, studying lions our whole lives, uh, we realized that we needed to not just save lions one lion at a time, or leopards or lions or, or, or rhinos, but to look at the land that these animals needed and to get that land between 40 and 60% of where lions exist today is not protected. So we needed to, to find land where these animals could still exist and then secure it via leasehold. And then we needed to pay for it. And so we, we added in a business model, which is this, this tourism. So we then had a choice of going to a $100 a night model or a $3,000 a night model and that is where the differential is so we uh, go to the high end mainly because i think that part of what we do at great plains is try and open our doors to influencers people who can come in look at what we're doing in the conservation arena have fantastic one great linen in a hopefully beautifully designed camp and then go away and spread that message not about us but how they should deal with sustainability, how they should deal with conservation, and how they should, in many ways, redraw their agreement with nature. This series of Design Pod is sponsored by Geberit. As someone who sees the industry from a unique perspective and sees what's happening through a wide lens, I see sustainability somewhat losing its meaning. 
Therefore, the term and any claims need to be backed up with science, data, and perhaps accolades. For the third year in a row, the Geberit Group has received a platinum award from EcoVadis for its sustainability management. It places Geberit among the top 1% of all companies listed by EcoVadis across all industries and countries and demonstrates Geberit's comprehensive, systematic and long-term sustainability management plans. Where did the, the story start? Where was your first site and your first camp? And can you explain um, to me what that what that looked like? Because the one yeah. thing I really love about this story, Derek, is that yourself and Beverly come from, I mean, you, you're videographers and photographers for National Geographic. You know, that really was what was, you know, bringing in the money to start with. And that's always been your passion. But you you design these camps through the lens of, of a filmmaker, I think. And I think you get a really interesting narrative through that. And so I'd love for you to explain to us how that's what the first camp looked like and what it felt like as well. Yeah, so that's really interesting as well. So, so we were working in an area in Botswana. We were filming there. We'd done a number of films there with National Geographic, one of the most remote places on the planet. Probably the place that we were camped at to do this was as far away from anything on the left as it was on the right. So, we no matter which way we went, it was a long way. Driving into town took us six and a half hours, and that was if it was an incident-free drive. But the roads are terrible. This is a long, long way away. But the area had been hunted quite heavily for a long time, and the wildlife numbers were diminishing. So when the opportunity came for us to take it over and to buy it as a going operation from the outgoing guys who, who had just got tired of it, we jumped at it. We had to raise some money. We emptied our piggy banks and we bought it, but we shut down hunting on the first day and immediately then had a look at designing something that, that would be high-end tourism friendly. And to start that, I had looked at the, at the story of expedition and exploring into Africa. We're explorers at National Geographic, and so that narrative comes easily for us. So it's the big sweeping canvas tents, light colors and flowing in the breeze and campaign furniture. We got, as people in, 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 the, in this era, we got influenced by explorers coming in from all over the world, from, from South America, from India, in particular from India, from the, the British Indian campaign as those uh, colonial soldiers came down when they didn't want to go back to England, they hit Africa, Mombasa came down, but they brought with them great taste, great carpets, great campaign furniture, um, <laughs> and wonderful style. And so I wanted to incorporate all of that almost like a movie set, wanted to design a movie set where travelers could come in, stay with us and become the main characters in their own movie. And uh, that was the first camp. And how did you ensure that what you're designing was complementing the natural landscape and, and not an eyesore? You know, what, what, how, how sort of conscious were you around designing something that was also safe as well from, you know, from wildlife? Because that must be a consideration. It's a secondary consideration because the way to do that is to is to put knowledgeable guides around people so that they don't go wandering off and, and fall into the hippo pool. The, <laughs> the way that we designed um, was very definitely to limit impact on environment and limit all the negatives of visual evils that we find in so many buildings around the world today. And so I also wanted to convey a sense of impermanence. 
I think that too often we come into a great natural landscape and then try and make it our own. So we put up a blockhouse and we say, we tamed it, we made it our own. We also destroyed it, but we made it our own. So I wanted to give a sense that we were temporary there. If all of our guests are temporary, we're here just for a moment, maybe, maybe two or three days, maybe 20 years, but most certainly not for thousands of years. We are visitors to landscapes like this in Africa. And so first thing I did is I put all the, all the buildings, all the tents up on, on stilts so that the, where the building touches is just at the points of, of um, stilts. So very, very light footprint, really up high. The instruction to the actual builders was that we can only trim the vegetation if uh, it is any thicker than my thumb. Anything thicker than my thumb is then a tree, and then you've got to work around that. And so we trimmed a little here and there. We never cut down a tree. And we inserted these beautiful flowing tents up in the canopy of the forest on stilts. Um, and today, people drive nearby to the camp and then suddenly go, oh, wow, there's the camp. So they, it's not something you see from a long, long way away. So, so it really is designed in nature and, and with nature as opposed to, you know, standing as a alone and aside so exactly. people, their experiences back. really are deep in in safari exactly right it's pushed back into that beautiful veneer that is nature um, and then you know not flippantly but for the safety aspect that very first camp some of our other camps are different we build walkways wonderful swing bridges or walkways so that you get off the ground but in that particular camp Zarafa in Botswana, um, you walk from tent to tent on the ground, but um, we have guides walking with you. We have a little, where there are broken down trees, we put we stack those up against the path. So it's a seamless integration into nature that feels relaxed, but safe. I guess also by designing that way, there's there's longevity there. You know, like I can imagine the, the first camp isn't, you know, redundant and it's still as, as important as all the others. and. The other thing as well is like, I, I know your camps, that each camp has its own personality and has a different design inspiration. Can you talk to us about some of the perhaps more bizarre sort of pieces of inspiration for, for the camps? Well, yeah, sure. The, the overall rule that we have is that whatever we put into a camp, yeah, a little like me, whatever we put into the camp has to look better as it ages. So <laughs> like you. <laughs> so like a great a great teak floor, for instance. If you drop something on it, it actually looks better that way. If it gets scuffed, uh, you polish it out, it looks weathered, it's got a patina on it. If you put in plastic, you've got to replace that every year because if it's if it's a little bit broken and they do break more, then it just looks horrible. And so we build for 50 years and getting better, even though there's a sense of impermanence about it, but the things we put in there, many of them, like the furniture and so on, are 17th, 18th, 19th century pieces of, of furniture. And they do look better. They look fantastic in there. And they fit into that environment. The way that I approach this, just to take a step back, Hamish, is when we want to put up a camp or a lodge in some particular place, we spend an extraordinary amount of time 
scouting the location, having a look at it, understanding what it's sleeping on a bedroll under the trees, listening to the to the forest, looking at the stars, looking at which way the sun goes down and, and comes up again. And we do it in, in four seasons so that we understand if there's a flush of insects, for example, that we need to build against. And if the sun changes very dramatically in the summer, winter, all of that. And once we've got that ground information, some of which you can research, but you can't really feel it unless you've slept some nights under the stars on a bedroll with a campfire in front of you. And you do that in every camp? Yes, every single one. Then we look at the forest around us or the savanna or whatever the habitat is, and, we've, and we try and understand its iconic story. So in one area, for example, at Cylinder Camp, the story there, you'll see lions and elephants and hippos and, and you know, leopards and all sorts of things. Um, but the story there is the story of elephants. And so we then designed the, the story of that camp around the story of elephants. Now, you can do that in a good way, which I hope we've done, or a bad way, which would be a theme park. Um, exactly. It's not themey. So the linen, you, we don't give you pajamas with little elephants on them and things like that. But the... Um, <laughs> The a good example is so in in Salina, you walk up the stairs and and left and right are life sized elephant life sized skulls out of bronze with the tusks, and laser etched into the forehead of each is a Latin phrase. On the one on the left is Homenosque per ipsum, the other Homenosque te ipsum, one meaning man know thyself, the other man, meaning man forgive thyself, and the whole idea is that when you cross that threshold into this place where Livingston, the explorer, shot thousands of elephants and Salu came through and did, he took his, made his own dent on the elephant population. We can't, we must know who we are, but we can't beat ourselves up for who we were 100 years ago, 200 years ago. But we do need to redefine our relationship with elephants. Mm -hmm. And so that camp, as you go through that, uh, we encourage people to go on that journey and then to look around and then to understand what the camp's telling you. And that particular camp, again, the extended story is once you understand your physical relationship with these animals, we need to also understand our physical and metaphysical relationship with, with the other elements on the planet. So in this camp, you go through an area that is mainly white with uh, flowing silk ceilings representing air, you go into another, which has got brown tables where the food comes out of the earth and goes, so it's earth. We've got another that's blue furniture and, and, and a, a view out onto the river, the water. You go to the fire area, which has got red cushions on it. And uh, so with the bronzes, as you go in, that's metal, earth, air, fire, water. So that balance of those elements is the story of that particular camp. And each one of our camps has some forethought to it and uh, from a design point of view. And when you're coming up with these narratives and this, this inspiration, um, you and Beverly work so well as a team together. Um, and there's so many stories that really represent that. But um, what are the conversations you're having together to kind of carve out the, the right narrative for each camp? And are there examples where you had an idea and it just wasn't quite right, but then something else happened and it was like the aha moment on a project? When does that happen? So it happens through that basic stage where we're sitting around the campfire looking up at the at the forest, a piece of forest in front of us, saying, what's its story? Um, and then that pulls through 
to every step of the way there's a there's a dialogue to be very honest you know i might say so we've got two camps in in kenya one is mara plains camp we've got many camps in kenya but one in the mara is mara plains camp the other one is mara and yika so the color palette for example in mara plains camp is very obviously drawn from the maasai culture which is the deep reds those vibrant reds but one has to be careful because that that sugar, that almost Scottish um, tartan in red, is quite overdone in in that region, and so we needed to deconstruct that element and then construct it again from a style stylized point of view. Then, which we did, I think, within Mora plans quite nicely. Then we went across in Moranika, which is not that far away. Same Maasai people, same influences there. And so when we were debating how to differentiate it, just that color pattern, for example, mm. um, we came across a group of Maasai that only wear purple and white. And as we came across that, we went, there it is. That's the color tone for this camp. And, it, and then we'll find a staff member wandering from one camp to the other or going from one to the other and bringing his purple sugar with him. And I go, what are you doing here in purple? You've got a been read now you've got to take that <laughs> so it's a bit of a struggle to hang on to that narrative if nobody if not everybody knows it but those are the debates along the way as to what is the story here i think with a lot of hotels that i go and visit in for example urban areas people are checking in and they're busy and you know and the design within the, those spaces are you know intricate and they kind of sensitively reference the sense of place but you wouldn't necessarily know whereas i feel as if guests checking in in one of your camps they're intrigued from the off to ask questions and to understand the design what do you get from guests in that respect are they constantly asking about you know these tribes and how how things are reflected and and how do they leave compared Mm. to how they how they arrived well i can tell you what how they arrive and what they ask and the influences on them immediately how they leave is only a hope and a wish i hope that they left significantly changed by this and i'll tell you in the way that I hope they are changed. But when people arrive, they most certainly, nine times out of 10, come into the space and then go, wow, this is not what I anticipated. Um, (laughs) What do you mean by that? You know, many come and they say, look, we knew we were going to be in a lodge, but this is not what we thought. Or we knew, we thought we were going to be in a tent, but we never thought it was going to be as lavish and as big as this the best incarnation of that or version of that is in uh, one of our camps mora plains where the way that it's designed right now and there was a camp there and we took the camp down and, and moved it by about 15 degrees and then reassembled it and the reason for that is as you arrive in mora plains you drive the vehicle in from the airfield you're driven rather you get out and you you look immediately into at a, a hole in the in the forest thin branches carved out so it's a frame in the forest that you can see right through the camp right through to the other side of the Maasai Mara and a bridge punches right through that hole so you walk through into a little bit like from the green room opening up the the theater curtains and then stepping out onto stage in your own play so you you go through across this bridge which is a swing bridge which immediately forces you to to hang on and pay attention that you're entering a new world now 
not the stable world of escalators and lifts, but one where we are a little bit unsettled, it's a little bit moving underfoot. And then straight through that, you go up a series of stairs, but as you go up the stairs, the entire vista of the Mara is revealed in front of you. And it's a straight line, a grassland, and a single tree, a single tree out on the horizon, maybe five miles away. Now, when we orientated the camp, we drew a line from the tree to the center of the lounge, to the center of the bridge, to the parking lot. And within that, I then designed the tent that you enter the lounge uh, on the perfect proportions of a 1.821 ratio, which is the 35 millimeter photographic frame. Because you come into the Mara many times, most people, uh, to take photographs of this amazing place. So you've already got, or you will soon get, because we give free cameras in our caps, uh, you'll get used to the ideal golden rectangle of a, of a photographic frame. And that is the proportion the tent is built in. Not wider, not fatter, just that, that's that, that 1A2 to 1 frame. And so it's training the eye and again, taking people into that journey. So many people walk up those stairs and they go, wow, did you guys plant that tree there? Because it's perfect. And go, well, it is perfect. But now we built the camp here because of the tree. And so that starts that dialogue. And I love that. In terms of inside the camp, how have you divided the public areas up from the private areas? And what are the considerations being? Is it conventional or is it unconventional? As you're walking through mm. the camp, what does that sort of feel like? And is, there, is, is every camp different, I imagine? Every camp's different. Every room's different. But the, the philosophy behind that is we build the, mainly we build out of canvas. And so these are tent light structures, but they they large. So we build that each tent so that while it's a private experience, it's also got uh, the capacity to do the things you would do in the main areas, in the in the public areas, in your tent as well. So private dining, private massage, in private uh, you know bar, private uh, swimming pool, whatever that might be. You can go into your own tent and not come out for a week. That's that's you could live there and many people do um many people and ironically i was this one for a weird one hamish many people on honeymoon <laughs> come in see their tent and they go this is fantastic you're not going to see us for for weeks here and then within two days they come wandering out into the public area and meet some other people and they so the public areas are often very, very spacious, so that even though you're in a public area, you can find your own little nook and cranny. Yeah. Or I quite like having the the ability to have a common dining table. So when you've gone off and you've had your day's exploration, uh, you can either choose to have a private dinner in a wine cellar or in a library or at your own tent or even in the main area. Or, and I find this happens at, at least two or three times on a safari, People want to meet other people as strangers, sit around the common table and, and share stories because Africa is the, the place we were born in as man. And a great part of who we are is a communicative ape. We come back to the fire and we tell stories. And I think we tell stories when we got other people to tell them to. So people gather around the fire. Sometimes people gather around the fire and have gin and tonic 
um, and then go off and have their own dinners. Also, We've evolved. Or... Gin and tonic is now included. No, no we original man had gin and tonic. <laughs> <laughs> With a slice. Yeah, exactly. You're right, though. I mean, and, and actually, I don't know if you can do this. I've never been able to express the feeling of being in Africa. There's a there's an, I, I've never been able to describe what that feels like, but it's um, there's a real homely kind of um, warm, but also as, as you've explained with some of the camps, it's like you know you're you're in an unfamiliar territory here, so you know nature rules. What is Africa to you? Well, me a little different to our average visitor, but I think there are components of that in our average visitor as well, because I think that Africa is home. Africa is the place where man was born, and so. You know, I might feel a little bit uncomfortable with polar bears in Churchill, um, but uh, coming into Africa, I know that every time I go out into the bush, having gone away, as I have just been, I come back and I take a deeper breath and I go, I'm home. But I think that all of us do that because we were born in Africa and we migrated out, but we all do have that connective tissue. Our DNA comes from here. We come back. And then we look around and we go, why does this feel so good to us? And it's because of so many things. I think, first of all, landscapes in East Africa are landscapes. Whereas if you're in other habitats, sometimes they, they're not. They're sort of, um, you know, not horizontal. They're vertical scapes. And that makes me feel visually uncomfortable. As a result, when I'm designing, I design in the horizontal. I don't design for the vertical, no, so our windows yeah. are horizontal. I've been in hotels where the, out of necessity usually, they are vertical windows, and um, I find that too limiting on either side. Mm -hmm. I want to see left and right. I want to see far, and so all of our designs in our camps have a view. They have a, a, a long view and a far view. Most of our camps have water in the front. If we can't, if we don't have water naturally, I put a swimming pool in the front because I think that prehistoric man born in Africa lived and evolved in the hills of Africa where we could see far across, across that horizon. We had a solid rock base behind us. So, you know, the back walls and we had access to water. And so there's combination of looking for having water and having a solid cave behind you are important in our minds. Yeah. And I, I also am really intrigued by how you captured wellness within within the camps as well. You know, I'm talking about the freestanding baths, but just naturally taking a step back as to what wellness is today, but what it what it should feel like and really going in hard on the feeling as opposed to the look and the aesthetics of wellness. How has that played out in the camps that you've designed and what's what's the consideration been when when wellness is involved? Because that's obviously a demand among modern travelers. We fundamentally, besides looking better as you get older, um, fundamentally <laughs> believe that uh, there are three components, certainly within within our very small world in Africa here, um, is that you you must work and, and do whatever you can to work on having a healthy mind in a healthy body in a healthy environment. So if the environment that you're living in is broken, it's hard to get up in the morning and want to go for a run. And if you can't, if the environment's so broken, you can't get fresh food, you're not going to have a healthy body or a healthy mind. So one of our philosophies throughout, whether we, whether it's the, what we feed our staff, whether we, how we provide places for them to get exercise and, and stay fit, or whether it's for our guests, but it's those three key fundamentals. 
So the way that manifests, and I'm having a bit of fun right now in Mara Plains, for example, where we cut in one end of the of the common the public area off and creating a large interactive kitchen where our guests can come up and sit at the kitchen without having we don't require them to wash the dishes or anything, but to stand <laughs> at the kitchen. Maybe if I was there you would. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you would have to. Um and then engage with the chef as he's doing stuff. So the chef would be saying, um, right, you're you're a vegan and pl plant-based vegetarian or whatever it might be. Um, and here's what I'm doing for you. I'm going to add some of this in here and then I'm going to flame it, big flames going. It's that theater, isn't it? The theater about life. We've theater and wellness, because you mentioned yeah. just like being around people and, you know, wellness doesn't have to be a swimming pool, though obviously that's very nice. It can yeah. just be those little moments that you don't expect, maybe. That's that's the the luxury in luxury, I think, these days. It's the one-off experiences yeah. that just ex exceed your expectations in a way that's not vulgar, you know, in a yeah. way that's community-driven and socially-driven and, that's you know, right. enhances your experience. That's a great example. And we... Uh, for example, take our guests or offer that we don't, again, make them do forced labor. But if they want to go to the back of the house and see where our vegetable gardens are, and we, you know, we might have the chef take them there and say, you know, I was thinking tonight about maybe doing um, an arugula salad for you. Would you like to pick your arugula? You know, so that sort of thing. So it, be, it becomes a part of your life going forward. And also our chefs, all executive chefs, make a point of coming out and pointing out the kitchen, but also saying to our guests, we don't really have any rules here. So how do I cater for you specifically? Are there things you like and you don't like? My worst version of a safari is where you go to some camp or, or lodge. Um, you're up at five in the morning on routine. You're out for a drive. You come back again. They feed you a heavy eggs and bacon breakfast and then within like an hour or two they fed you feed you a heavy uh, uh, lunch and then uh, you you stumble off after a couple of glasses of rosé wine and then you're out at four in the afternoon for your gin and tonic and then a heavy meat meal after two or three days of that you are finished yeah. after a week i've had many people write back to us at great plans after a week people say you know i was never hungry but i lost weight and I feel cleaner, I feel fresher. What did you do to me? And I think that it's that entire embracing of wellness, part of, an underrated part of which is the expression and the acceptance of joy. And I think that having fun and having warm people around you, I mean, the, the hospitality of the Kenyan people, for example, is without bounds. Uh, I go back there and the staff come up and they'll touch me on the arm and go, so glad you're home. You know, that sort of thing is that warmth and that feeds joy and that makes you happier. But you know what? I think that's why you found it so seamless to scale up as a brand. Um, so many businesses find it hard to sort of capture their their core, like, you know, uniqueness about what makes them them when they scale up. But you've opened these camps all with the same mindset. And by that mindset and it not being too rigid, you've been able to come up with different ideas. And yet the thread that pieces them all together is that wellness, is that connection to earth, and is the people that you employ in order to make that hospitality great. And just the way in which you, 
I mean, I, I just want to reference a story that I heard last time we spoke, which was Beverly, your wife. Um, she got injured, didn't she, when you were out on a shoot and she ended up spending a lot of time in hospital. This just sums you up as, you know, as a, as a business and as people in the world. In hospital, she realised that the female uh, staff that were looking after her had a lack of opportunity. So she created a, um, a new charity from the hospital bed. Like, <laughs> It's mind blowing what you guys do, and it's that that's driving the success of of how how the the brand is is continuing. And you know, you said earlier, you know, got a terrible business. So obviously, the business needs to succeed, but it's the people that you really care about, and you can see that through everything you do. How do you see that progressing moving forward? Well, well, first of all, yes, and I, I love that story because Beverly really did focus on somebody else's problems, even though they were minor in comparison Absolutely. to <laughs> um no yeah she she died in my arms three four times you know so but the um i think what how one develops that i i firmly believe first of all that the scene of sorry jerick i don't mean to interrupt but did uh, that's that's really intense did did things change after that in terms of her mindset to to the camps i mean that was a, a big incident that happened in both of your lives or was it always kind of the way i wonder i'm busy writing a memoir at the moment and i'm looking for those changes that may have happened the obvious change that i think people would anticipate is that somebody being hit by a buffalo and being carried off on the horns of a buffalo would therefore thereafter be terrified of buffalo but it wasn't like that at all. When we got straight back to the bush, uh, we went out and the first thing we we drove into was a herd of buffalo. And Beverly was there taking great photographs of the buffalo and I was watching her and thinking, mm, I wonder if there's gonna be any post-trauma involved here. Triggers. None whatsoever. In fact, I think that it simply strengthened her resolve to wake up every morning and do what she can to mend the planet in some ways, what she went through, and to a much lesser degree, me, was to draw these analogies, again, maybe it's our storytelling ape within us, to draw these analogies between the planet and what she was going through in the ICU. The planet is in a version of an ICU right now, intensive care being needed, and it's touch and go, whether we'll survive it. And so we have to all do what we can to, to apply emergency services. <laughs> um, but from a design point of view, it's interesting. So we design, uh, we have a lot of fun telling the story, then designing the lodges and the camps. So the, the long-term future of that is, can we keep doing them more and more and more? Can we get to 100 camps? Well, it depends on how many stories we've got. So How many uh, are you up to now? Uh, so we've got 14 camps now. And I would hope as a filmmaker, author, storyteller, I've got more than 14 stories in me. Um, one way to find out. <laughs> yeah, well, but I do think that at some point, and in fact, you should let me know, Hamish, the minute we repeat a story, um, then I want to stop. Then I want to say, yeah. that's where we've got to or maybe pull back, but stop there. And I think that the ideal size of Great Plains is 25 to 30 camps depending on the areas, because again, we'll get stimulation out of out of if we're going to North America or South America or mm -hmm. Uganda or, you know, Arctic Circle or whatever it is, there'll be different influences. But a little bit like um, an artist standing up against a blank canvas again, I have not yet had the version of camp building writer's block. 
there's stories I want to tell. And that's only because I think the camp tells me its story. And all I have to do is ask for permission. And then it flows. Mm. But uh, there will come a time where I'll probably say that's enough now. And it may, it may not be the, the ability to tell the stories via the design. But the, uh, the management of the operations behind that. So of the 14 camps we've got now, from within them, we hire 770 people. And so doubling that will mean a couple of thousand people. And at that point, it may well be too big for us. Um, and I hope not. I hope that we keep it as a family business and just because those, those 770 people are our family. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think a design studio couldn't produce the work, the the rawness that you're able to produce. And what, what I find really fascinating um, <clears throat> about your camps is that you're obviously catering to a luxury audience that that has money and is able to to spend on a safari. And arguably the experience is outside of the camp because it's obviously around nature. But you're almost able to kind of, and I've seen this happen in other properties as well, and actually done well, it works so effectively, is just like take away the polish, take away the veneer of what people think luxury is and luxury is to them and provide them something scaled back and something that's you know more more in touch with the community and nature around them keep doing that Derek and I think you'll be absolutely fine <laughs> <laughs> well thank you but you you do touch on something there I think that there's some basics if we're going to bring a a billionaire in for a life-changing experience we have to get some things absolutely tucked away and right we have to at least, this is what we have as a mantra, we have to at least provide service levels and quality of food and wine and sleeping accommodations to what he's used to and what she's used to in her, at their home. So if you come out of a $150 million house in Miami, one of which I drove past yesterday, um, <laughs> and imagine what they've got going on there if we're going to have a meaningful conversation with them about conservation and changing their lives and contributing towards the planet we have to have that stuff tucked away we can't be saying there were when we were born 450,000 lions and today they're 20,000 lions to somebody who's saying you know what this wine is the cheapest and horrible worst wine I've ever tasted in my life you go well, let's get that right that's that's just as the mechanics now let's have a so that in many ways is the uh, the transactional part of our relationship let's just give them what they're at least or better than what they used to at home then we can have the transformational conversation about how we can collectively as partners change the planet mm, it's a balancing act at the end of the day isn't it Derek it's been an absolute pleasure I always leave our conversations super inspired and just yeah I could talk to you for days about this thank you so much for joining us on the podcast yeah exciting times well thank you very much we will talk for days one day when we get out around that campfire together oh absolutely yes <laughs> I mean, thank you so much okay so if you're not inspired by the Joe Bears after that I really don't think I can help you <laughs> There are so many things that I want to unpick after this interview, including their charity work, but we simply don't have time. The one thing I will say, though, is that I am completely captivated by the authentic and natural way that these camps are created, always answering to nature in the process. It gives each property its own character and offers guests staying there the luxury of one-off travel experiences. 
That concludes this episode. I'd like to thank Geberit for being our series sponsor as well as our producer, Mel Yates. Special thanks to Derek and Beverly for allowing me to, I hope sensitively, tell their story and for everything they do for the hospitality landscape. Join me next time where I'll be catching up with the one and only Alessandro Munje, where we'll be discussing transforming spaces, hot off the heels of the designer appearing on another podcast that I host, Travel by Design, brought to you by Marriott. Between now and then, if you've enjoyed listening to this episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And also feel free to dig through the archive to listen to other episodes that we've released. See you next time.